Go ahead and turn to the, well, I'm going to talk a little while, but you can go ahead and turn to, um, just turn to the first chapter of Matthew. If you'll notice on that schedule, and I've done the same thing that we did with Elijah last year. I've just listed the text that I want us to go through. You notice they're all from the gospel of, they're all from the gospel of Matthew. Um, and we'll get through these uh, before the spring's over. So obviously, we're looking at some of the the um, conflict stories. Again, there's more of them there than you realize. We're looking at some of the conflict stories with Jesus. Uh, obviously, as we go through the text, we'll learn and hear and read a lot of other stuff. Uh, but these are some of the primary texts where Jesus is dealing with conflict. Um, before I get into the Bible, let me share a story with you that was really defining for me in a lot of ways. 25 years ago, I was serving a church, had just showed up, and at year-end reports, six months later, it was discovered that one of our beloved associates had embezzled 30 some thousand dollars And believe it or not, I don't know that I'd have believed it ahead of time, but it really depended upon how you defined embezzlement. Um, so, you know, about half the congregation was ready to go to the district attorney. About the other half of the congregation said it was our fault. We should have never let him be around money. It, we should have been handling it and not him. It, so, yeah, it, it thrust the congregation to a deep, deep, deep conflict. Um, went on for 10 months. Went on for 10 months. We, we hired mediators to help um, uh, the church come back together. What I learned was people with the gift of mercy and people with the gift of administration, they see things differently, such as, was that embezzlement or not? Um, one Sunday morning, I had a banker in my narthex handling out a, handing out a 10-page document proving that that other guy with me in the pulpit had embezzled. But then I had good Christian people running around saying, we need to forgive and forget, don't worry about it. It's our fault. We shouldn't have let them around money. People with the gift of mercy and people with the gift of administration on two different sides. Well, we, had, we, we um, hired some mediators. Uh, there are, I guess it's still a good group. I guess they're still there. They're called peace, peace, peacemakers.org. Uh, they, they do their work at the Billy Graham Center. They're they're Christian-based. Let me just point this out again with it's, it's, it's peacemakers, not peacekeepers. I hope you know the difference. A lot of people are peacekeepers. You don't want anyone around you fighting or arguing or debating. You want everybody to love you. You want everybody to love each other. You know, God forbid we ever disagree. So you sort of keep a lid on it. That's called peacekeeping. Peacemaking is very different. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the peacekeepers. And those are two very different things. I know some people, they, they never want to make peace because sometimes you've got to go through a little conflict to make peace. Uh, those are only peacekeepers. So to start with, make sure you know the difference between those two terms. Um, so it's at organizations called peacemakers.org. Uh, they came in, and their first session I'll never forget. They drew a line on a board, straight line on a board. And on one half, they said, these are the degrees of being passive. On another half, these are the degrees of being aggressive. Now, what does it mean to be passive? Just let things go. Just let things go. Don't worry about it. Uh, just, just go along to get along. You know, the most important thing in the world is not have people debate or disagree or be in conflict. You know, you let people walk all over you. That's the passive. Now, what's aggressive? Yeah, go get them. Go get them. You'll find people to go get. I mean, even if they're, you know, if you have to make them up. Now, what these, what these people said to us was the, the extreme of being passive, you can call that suicide. When you really don't want to deal with it to the extent, you just check out. The extreme of aggression, we call that murder. So what they, what they helped us understand is we've got to hang out in the middle. 
healthy conflict. Um, I'm sure there's people in this room, because I was born this way, and I spent the first 20 years of my ministry this way. There was no such thing as healthy conflict. You avoided conflict at all costs, whether it's in your family, your friendship circle, whatever, your church. Um, and I've noticed over the years people accept conflict in their family quicker than they will accept conflict in their church sometimes, which is fascinating to me. I mean, human beings are everywhere, and they're, you know, they just mess things up wherever they're at, whether it's in your family or in the church. Um, and, and, and these people helped us to teach, helped us to understand what we were after. Because, again, what good Christian people will do, they will ignore, they'll be passive, they'll look at you and say, bless your heart, until they kill you and bury you in the backyard. And, you, you know, you don't need to bounce from one extreme to the other. Again, what we're after is a healthy, healthy interaction with conflict. Um, and it's amazing how many adults I know don't know this. Um, I remember about 20 years after going to seminary, I was listening to John Maxwell, who's a great, great teacher on leadership and is of course, an adjunct to Hopple University now. I heard um, John Maxwell 20 years ago say, um, if, you're, if you're a pastor, you spend 25% of your life with two things, two things of which neither are discussed in seminary. You spend 25% of your life dealing with transition, how to help people go from point A to point B without destroying everything in the, in the journey, and conflict. That's 25% of your time. And I remember he was right. When I went through seminary, we didn't talk about either. You know, we just, we just didn't. But that's 25% of our life. And, I don't, and that may, it's probably a little high for pastors because they're trying to work with a group of people. But if you've avoided conflict all your life, you may be super passive. Or you, or you will die young with multiple ulcers or something. Um, <laughs> Conflict is a fact of life, um, which, again, that's why I think people don't even notice how much of the Gospels are given over to conflict. Um, when you get to Matthew 23, and I say get to Matthew 23 because it's, it's almost as if the whole Christian community, they've ignored Matthew 23. They don't know Matthew 23 exists. They can't believe Jesus says what he says in Matthew 23. And we'll get there in a few months. <coughs> you can go home and read it. You can go home and read it. There you see not the Jesus meek and mild, but that's probably where you see the angriest Jesus. There and in the casting out of the money changers in the temple are the two places you see the angriest Jesus. And... Um, and remember, even Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You're never told don't be angry. If you don't get angry about some things in life, again, you are too far to the passive side. There should be some things that, that make you angry. Uh, one of the things we did while we were in Rwanda was we went to the Genocide Museum. You know, uh, terribly, terribly convicting for me. Um, because I remember growing up with my father, who was a World War II veteran, and I was always, I've always been amazed that all that Holocaust Nazi stuff happened in my da dad's lifetime. Well, I know how old I was in 1994. I know what I was doing. I know where I was pastoring. I somehow missed that Rwandan genocide. Most of us here in the United States did. Uh, we were paying a little attention to the Balkan situation, but we almost paid no attention to 1,000 uh, Tutsi and Houthi tribal people in Rwanda being butchered by their neighbors. We miss that. Yeah, if you're not paying enough attention to be angry sometimes, and we can kind of live in our own little bubble, you know, and sometimes we, we are so conflict avoidant, yeah, that we can create a little bubble to live in. Um, yeah, and one of the reasons Kigali in Rwanda now is the most beautiful city in Africa. It's the cleanest city in Africa. Almost everything there has been built since 2000. And I kept asking why, and I got the same answer. Every, and it's the most vibrant economy on the African continent. And I kept asking, 
why I kept getting the same answer, white guilt. We ignored it. Europe, the United Nations, America. Now, we were paying a little attention to what we thought was a genocide in the Balkans at the same time. But the one on the African continent, and I, you know, you're probably sitting there thinking you don't even remember when this happened in 1994. Um, yeah, if you, if there are not some things in life that make you angry, yeah, you're you're too far on the on the passive side. Uh, Jesus or Paul said, "Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the anger lead you into sin." But yeah, anger—you can have a righteous anger, and some people just develop a life where they become so passive. Jesus certainly wasn't there. Jesus was not a milk toast. Jesus, Jesus did not get walked all over by those Pharisees and those Sadducees. So um, that's why the New Testament, and we're just going to kind of stay with Jesus mostly, but the New Testament is so full of teaching about how to deal with conflict. That's why, by the way, I think we're in a culture that we have created in the last generation where if you even disagree with me, that means you hate me and I hate you. We can't even disagree anymore. We're so conflict avoidant. Well, we're tired of it because of the media. So we're tired of conflict and we become so conflict avoidant, we don't even know how to disagree. When I do premarital counseling, one of the, one of the things I do is I talk to that couple about how to have a good fight. And you'd better learn how to do that. And there, there's ways to do it. By the way, um, yeah, Gary Chapman's coming this weekend because um, his book, The Five Love Languages, can help couples have a good fight. Um, I've used that book since it came out. I've made every couple that I've ever married read that book before, before the wedding. Um, there's, we got like 460 people signed up, but it's in the sanctuary, so we still got more room. You know, like I went to my kids, my young marrieds, and that was a, what a part of what I gave him for Christmas. I said, we'll keep the babies. You go here, Gary Chapman. So uh, if you've got somebody in your life, and it might be you, um, still a great gift. Uh, he'll, he'll do um, his workshop on Saturday um, before and after lunch, and we provide lunch. And then he'll preach Sunday morning. But if you've not read Gary Chapman's The Five Languages of Love, it is so essential. You can get it for dirt cheap at used bookstores because so many of them have been produced over the last 25 years. But yeah, you better, learn, you better know how to have a good fight. And most people don't know how to do that. They, they kind of go beyond the issue at hand and start attacking the person. Um, instead of saying, I feel like what, what you did hurt me, let me tell you why, why what you did hurt me, we come at them and say, you're a horrible person. I can't stand you, don't know how to do anything. Yeah, we don't know how to have a good fight in this culture. Um, anyway, so with that, um, that's sort of the background, the intro to all these texts because the, the Gospels are much healthier than we are. Shouldn't shock you, Jesus is much healthier than we are. He didn't, you know, when he saw somebody with whom he had a disagreement, he didn't jump on the other aisle in the grocery store. Um, <clears throat> so th this can be some good stuff. I will learn a lot about Jesus because I can't avoid stuff when we look at it. But So you see the scriptures there that we'll use. Uh, you'll notice that Matthew, the, the last one, Matthew 26, 36 through 54, that, that's pretty much the passion account of Jesus. And that will we'll be doing that round or right after Holy Week, I'm sure. But um, So with that, let me do two things. <clears throat> let me introduce... No, let me do this first. A life verse for me that I read a book about back in the 90s is turn to Hebrews, because I've got to get this in. It's not Jesus. It's one of the epistles in the New Testament. It is a life-changing verse if people will grab hold of it. Go to the book of Hebrews... Go to chapter 12, because in this one verse, we learn why we need to learn to do this. In this one verse, which for me has been a life verse, Hebrews chapter 12.
And I could read the whole context, but just look at verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15. Um, and, and I'll tell you where I got introduced to this verse. is that famous book, and I mentioned it last year or so, John Bevere's book, The Bait of Satan. Bait, B-A-I-T, like fishing bait. The bait of, of Satan. What do you think the bait of Satan is? Most of the time to get you to fall, to get you to fumble. To get, well, in, the, in that book, The Bait of Satan, the thing that Satan uses the most to make us miserable and destroy our lives um, is what, what Bevere calls, and it's based on this verse, is called offense. People are going to come at you. People are going to hurt your feelings. People are going to irritate you. They're going to harm you. They're going to do terrible things to you. He, he, he calls all of that offense. The whole world will offend you, probably on a regular basis. Everybody in your life will offend you, probably on a regular basis. And when that happens, depending on how you react to that, will, will, will depend on whether or not you're letting Satan use that as a bait to get you to do other things. Here's the verse behind that. Look at verse uh, 15, chapter 12, Hebrews. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Okay, I mean, you should stop right there for a second. You don't want to fail to obtain the grace of God. You know, the grace of God forgives us, but also empowers us. It changes us. It transforms us. All of God's goodness can just be termed grace. And obviously, none of us want to, to fail to obtain the grace of God. Back to the verse. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, how do you do that? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Yeah, there are people who have a root of bitterness growing in them. They don't even know it. And it will cause you to fail to obtain the grace of God. And keep reading. Springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many will be defiled. That means your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, everybody that has to deal with you has to deal with the fact that you have allowed a root of bitterness to spring up in you. You haven't dealt with it and has continued. That, that's what's growing instead of the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't deal with that root of bitterness, you know, it will do horrible things to you, but it will defile everyone that is involved with you. So again, we've got to know, you know, Jesus says <clears throat> in, in chapter 10 of Matthew, offense will come. Again, you can't avoid this stuff. Before this day ends, someone will do something to you or say something to you that without a lot of melatonin and a Benadryl, you won't sleep tonight. <laughs> You'll lay there and cogitate about it. That's offense. So what do you do with that? How do you do that? How, I mean, people are not healthy uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with offense or dealing with conflict or dealing with people who don't agree with you. So <clears throat> remember all of that for the next four months as we look um, at these texts. Because that's our goal, to try to figure out on that scale between passive and aggressive. By the way, and these are the people who really irritate me. What is it to be passive-aggressive? And I really dislike those people. <laughs> what is it to be passive-aggressive? I'm not going to be aggressive towards you. I'll just burn your breakfast. I'm not going to be aggressive towards you. I'll just mess up your yard when I cut it. I'm not going to be aggressive towards you. I'd rather you be aggressive to me than be passive-aggressive. Again, down south... I've never lived up north, I don't know. But down south, being passive-aggressive is when I'm really, really angry at you, but I say, bless your heart and go burn your breakfast. That's We just don't deal with it. Well, we deal with it by being passive-aggressive, but we don't deal with it honestly and up front. Um, <clears throat> so the goal is not to be way out on the passive side, way out on the aggressive side, or be passive-aggressive. There can be a healthy way to do relationships. Um, in regards to con conflict. So, now, let's go back to the Bible. And by the way, we are going to pray at the end and kind of introduce ourselves to each other. Um, 
<clears throat> yeah, just quick, I'm going to introduce you to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, and you may know this if you've studied Matthew before, Matthew's Gospel is the, this is why we find so much conflict in it, it is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Uh, we know that in a lot of ways. Um, for instance, Matthew's Gospel is the only place in the New Testament you hear the phrase, kingdom of heaven, as opposed to kingdom of God. And the reason is Matthew is so Jewish, they don't throw the name, the Jewish community doesn't throw the name God around all the time. So a sort, what we call, call a circumlocution, instead of saying God, he says heaven. It's more respectful. You don't want to get in the, you don't want to even accidentally take God's name in vain. So he's so Jewish, he always calls it the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. Another reason you can tell he's very Jewish, unlike Mark's gospel, who every time Mark's gospel references a Jewish custom, for he's writing to Gentiles. So every time Mark's gospel references a Jewish custom, what do you think Mark does? He explains it to you. So we don't know what they do. In Matthew's gospel, he just presents it. He doesn't explain it to you. He assumes you know kosher. He assumes you know the rituals. He assumes you know the festivals. He's very Jewish. Um, another reason we know it's very Jewish is there, kind of depending upon how you count, there are at least 60 <clears throat> quotations of the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel. Um, another, if, and some study Bibles do this. Um, it's always hard for me to do this, but some study Bibles will give you like the theme verse for a book, almost all the time, the verse they will give you as the theme verse for Matthew's gospel is Matthew 5, 17, um, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, 17, you hear Jesus saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to do what? Fulfill them. He's not anti-law. He's not anti-Old Testament. He's not anti-prophets. He just says Jesus fulfilled. So, you know, for a lot of reasons, we know that Matthew's the most, most Jewish. Um, <clears throat> and that may be interesting because what was Matthew's um, profession? He had to walk away from his Jewish faith to go work for the Romans. So there's probably some guilt there. He is a Jew, but he was working for the Romans. But, all, but because of this is a very, very Jewish gospel, um, John's written for Gentiles, Mark's written for Gentiles, Luke is pretty much written for Gentiles, um, Matthew's written for Jews. Even the phrase, son of David, if I were teaching New Testament too and I put on your test, you know, just a, a verse from, and it mentions Son of David, and you had to tell me which book of the New Testament came from, you would know to tell me it comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Because he's the one that loves to say Son of David. Well, even the genealogy. The genealogy in Luke, because Luke may have been a Gentile, right? Remember? The genealogy in Luke goes back to Adam. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy in Matthew doesn't go back to Adam. Who does it go back to? Abraham. He's not concerned about anybody else. He's concerned about that Jewish line. So we know that, that Matthew is very, very Jewish, which is why Matthew contains probably more than the other Gospels do. It's hard to say it because it's so common in the other Gospels. Matthew probably contains more conflict between Jesus and Jewish religious leaders. It's constant in Matthew's gospel. Uh, against the Pharisees and against the Sadducees, against the Herodians. Um, those groups terribly disagreed with each other about everything except their hatred of Jesus. That's about the only thing they could agree on. So, um, so we're going to be doing Matthew. Let me show you one more. I'm still introducing. Let me show you one more verse, <clears throat> one more passage that for me I use 
on about a daily basis with people. As a matter of fact, I've got a discussion planned for later today when I will use this passage with somebody. Um, And this is just, again, sort of the introduction. Go to chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel. We'll do all of chapter 18 eventually, but just to show you something, as we think about conflict in general, if you look at Matthew 18, and this is Jesus speaking. Oh, by the way, going back to the Jewish nature. If you look at Matthew's gospel, there appears to be five discourses or sermons in Matthew's gospel from Jesus. You know the Sermon on the Mount, verses 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7. Well, there's four more passages that appear to be a sermon or a discourse. Why do you think Matthew, the good Jew, is painting a picture of Jesus? One of the ways he's painting a picture of Jesus is giving you five sermons from Jesus. Five books of Moses. He's the new Moses. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Who else Who else went up on a mountain and delivered a law? Moses. That's why that's the first discourse in Matthew's Gospel. Um, yes, yeah, a very Jewish text. Anyway, look at chapter 18. Um, from verses 10, 10 through 14, he's talking about being gentle and going after the lost sheep. Because he's getting ready to say something that you can misuse. And a lot of us do misuse it. But you have to understand that before he says what he's getting ready to say, um, he, he, he talks about the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, in verses 10 through 14. And then, you know, this high-level theology. After verse 14 comes verse 15. Sometimes when you're reading a text, make sure you know the context. So he's just told you the story about if there's one sheep that gets lost, you go after it. You don't say, well, I've got 99 others. I'm still in good shape. That's a pretty good percentage. If there's one that gets lost, you go after it. So he's talking about tenderness. Now go to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You and him alone. So when you call me, like I've got to return a call this afternoon, when you call me to complain about somebody else, I'm going to throw Matthew 18 at you. Don't talk to me until you've talked to that person. Don't triangulate is the modern psychological term. I don't, st- staff parish here, and I didn't teach them this, when staff parish here hires, one of their questions is, what do you do if you're talking to somebody in the church and they're talking terribly about Jeff or Clark or whoever, that person better say, I'm going to tell that person you need to talk to Jeff. You need to talk to Clark. We just love to talk about people. I mean, I learned that even more strongly in the last year. There's one person who has consistently trashed me on Facebook who has never spoken to me, never asked me a pie opinion. We'd rather talk about Someone that talked to that person. Notice what Jesus says. If someone has offended you, someone sinned against you, first step. There's four steps here. First step, go and tell him his fault or how he's hurt you. Between you and him alone. So you and that person alone. Not in front of other employees or other family, but you and him alone. That's about as practical as it can get. Here comes number two. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if, but if he does not listen, here's the second step. Take one or two others along with you uh, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, the person I talked to today, if they go and talk to this person, that's where I'm going to send them. I'm not going to have a conversation with them. If, they, if it doesn't resolve or restore, if it doesn't bring back the lost sheep, okay, then I'll go with them to have a conversation with that person. Um, I'm not going to let him just talk to me about that person. So you go one-on-one, then you go maybe, if that doesn't work, to restore. Uh, then you go one with somebody else. Then, then go to verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. You got to be careful with that one. Um, the way I at least functionally interpret that is tell it to some of the church leadership. I have removed some people from offices in churches because of something that I've been told that they did, and I send that person, that person, and that person comes back and says, no, he, he still wants to have a you know, different affair, affair each month. And I say, okay, we'll go, I'll go talk with you. He, and he's a, he has a position in the life of the church. And I have asked some people to step aside till they get their life situated. Um, so, you know, telling the church is not standing up. I, when I was a district superintendent, I had a person who called me. I learned pretty quickly he was hallucinating. He was on some medication that was calling him, that caused him to hallucinate. And he, um, he was convinced that his 80, I'm not ageist at this point, but I know these people, knew these people. He was convinced that his 85-year-old wife was having an affair with their 40-year-old pastor. It was a hard sell to me. And, and, and he told me some situations. He told me, like they all, the church went out singing Christmas carols, and, 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 and the pastor and his wife ended up missing, and they were out making out behind the church van. Well, that's the easy thing to figure out. I asked the other people who went Christmas caroling, and no. He, he was having hallucinations. Well, he was on, I even finally figured out what, what was going on with him with, with his health and his medication. When I didn't give him what he wanted, he just was going to go back to that church. He left the church over the situation. He was going to go back and stand up and worship one morning and tell the church. So I talked to some of the leadership, and I said, if you see him come back, you may want to have a conversation with him. That does not make for a rich worship experience. <laughs> if he stands up and um, does something like that. So when you say take it to the church, I think you have to be careful about that. And then step four, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What do we call that in church history? Excommunication. You know, one of the... Um, one of the big changes in, in modern church history is we don't do much discipline anymore. One of the things that helped the United Methodist Church split, our bishops quit enacting discipline in the lives of pastors. Discipline in the church is important. As Methodists, our guidance book, our book of church government is called the Book of... We quit doing discipline a long time ago. We're nice and kind and gentle. And even if we're mad at you, we just say, bless your heart and keep going about what we're doing. And that's, that's, that's part of what's brought this, our present crisis to head. Discipline's important. Now, again, when you read about that kind of stuff, and like the Apostle Paul, he makes it very clear that you do that, again, with the purpose of restoring, reconciliation restoring. You know, if you get to this extreme extreme situation um hopefully this extreme situation will help the other person get some help um the only other, only times i've really been involved with that is when someone in the body was involved with like children's abuse of children and they got off they got out of prison went on payroll uh, parole and came to church and I couldn't keep them away from children. I had one one time, I saw a guy stand up and worship, and he was talking about he needed volunteers for Girl Scouts. I'm sitting there thinking, I bet I know somebody that's going to show up tomorrow night. And that guy did. And I couldn't just go and say, bless your heart, will you please consent? No, I had to banish him from the campus. We tried and tried and tried to make sure that he never got around children by himself. And the more we tried, the more he tried. Um, so I had to finally excommunicate him from the campus. Um, <clears throat> I know of one church who had this person, and, and they had issues. But she did keep wanting to stand up and worship and, and take over the worship service and blast the congregation. One, in one of my churches, I had, um, you all know the name Tony Campolo? 
I had Tony Campolo speaking, so this person in the community decided that was going to be a full church. So she came to, to talk about how racist we are. And, you know, and I told her, we can have that conversation, but no, you're not standing up and worship when Tony Campolo is my visiting preacher. So I had to get the ushers to escort her away. I mean, sometimes you, that's drastic. That kind of excommunication is drastic. And, um, you know, as far as a personal life, and we'll get into forgiveness too. We'll look at some Jesus takes about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Very different. We get forgiveness, we'll discuss this. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is not the same as pardoning what they did. The work of forgiveness is something very different. But even if you do the work of forgiveness, and you know, in a perfect world, God would like for you to reconcile. But if you're doing the work of forgiving an abuser, no, you may not need to reconcile. You don't need to hang out with that person. You don't need to take that person back into your life. So reconciliation is a step beyond forgiveness. But um, sometimes Christians don't know that. Christians think, if I forgive you, I just let you off the hook. If I forgive you, you know, I'm kind of trying to forget what you did. If I forgive you, I'm declaring that what you did was not evil. Well, you almost can't do the work of forgiveness to you declare it evil. If the person has nothing to be forgiven... Forgiveness is easy. So it's not excusing the behavior. It's, it's, it's not pardoning the behavior. So forgiveness is very different. But that's why, that's sort of step four. That's how I think you do excommunication in a personal life. If you can't do the work of restoration, you know, then that person might not need to be the one that you go out and eat with on Friday nights. That person might not need to be the one that you let live with you some more. Uh, you might have to set some boundaries. So... Um, you know, the Bible's pretty clear on this stuff. But we are so conflict avoidant, we don't even pay attention to what the Bible teaches us. We just avoid conflict. It's the worst thing in the world. Now, some people, some people think conflict's the worst thing in the world. There's some people out there who would rather fight than go to Disney World. So again, what are we after? Healthy, healthy conflict. And by the way, I learned as a superintendent because we paid a bunch of money to be trained, we never use the phrase anymore, conflict resolution. It doesn't resolve. It may sort of in that situation, we call it usually conflict transformation. As soon as I finish with you two, I have you two to deal with. You know, it's an ongoing thing. And even in a relationship, it's an ongoing thing. You know, I'm sure before the week's out, I will irritate my wife royally. Because I seem to do it really easy. Um, so it's conflict transformation. You've got to learn how to deal with conflict. You can't just avoid it. Um, I think some people, well, I won't go there. Uh, any questions or comments? We're going to stop and introduce ourselves and pray. But we'll just go through these texts now in order. It's on your sheet. Yeah. You can't make a lot of money in the corporate world if you do conflict transformation. <laughs> Sometimes you just fire somebody. And sometimes change feels like surgery. And, you know, and, and that's what was happening in my church I mentioned. It had gone on for 10 months. Because we sort of wanted to resolve it with nobody hurt, nobody mad. And the mediators came in and pretty much laughed at us. They said, you need to do the surgery. It will be bloody, but you'll get over it. You can't let this go on and on and on and on and on. Somehow you've got to address it. But yeah, that's why some people, this is another generalization. If I had been placed in some leadership positions in larger churches or as a district superintendent, as a district superintendent, I had 43,000 Methodists that I was supposed to look after. If I had not been in that situation, I might still be avoiding conflict. You know, if it's a small church, no staff, but yeah, and some people organize their life that way to not ever deal with conflict. But um, you pay a price for that. A lot of, besides just the psychological anguish, you pay a price for that if you if you just refuse to deal with conflict. 
What else? Don't raise the issue. That's peacekeeping. That's not peacemaking. That's a good example. I'm glad you used it because I didn't want to. That's a good example of peacekeeping. Well, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. You're married to a Methodist. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some some groups and some people who will just do really not healthy things to keep from dealing with an issue. They keep, and I'm, I'm watching other churches, some churches. Any, if you don't deal with the issue, it's always not good to not deal with the issue. If you don't deal with the issue, some of the churches that refuse to, and they got general conference ne- next year, so they're really going to have a hard time to refuse to deal with it. But if they don't deal with the issue, um, and you, because you've got leaders that are peacekeepers, people start dealing with it. They start voting with their feet and their finances. Some of the biggest churches in our annual conference now are not big any longer. They tried to keep peace, and people on both ends of the spectrum exited. And um, I came to talk to you, and I I can send you to a bunch of people who voted with their feet and left when their churches refused to deal with it. Um, yeah, you got to build, you got to try to build consensus. Um, but yeah, and, and one of the things it was, when we headed down this path 10 years ago, some churches just figured it out the last few months. I remember someone told me, this is the way you need to accept this about life. It's going to be hard or it's going to be hard. There's not, and life is difficult. And if you, if your basic conviction in life is, my life should be easy and conflict-free, you didn't raise children for one thing, or you didn't do any, you didn't benefit those children that you raised. But yeah, it's not easy. That's why Jesus is always in conflict. I don't know how we followers of Jesus can end up being so conflict avoidant. You look at him in the Gospels. Now, the one that we'll struggle with, or I'll struggle with, in Matthew 23, it's a whole litany. And I'm glad 23 comes later because I'm still working on this one. There's a whole litany of Jesus calling Pharisees names. So y'all go ahead and start studying on that one. Because I, I tell you, don't call people names. But whitewashed sepulchers. There's a whole chapter. And I'm sure by the time we get to it, I'll figure out what to do with that. Because <laughs> I've got to be on Jesus' side. But, you know, don't want my children doing that. I always say, when you have a fight, don't call names. But he had that whole chapter. Is Jesus a litany of names and accusations? He's throwing after the Pharisees. So we'll, we'll work on that. I've never studied Matthew 23. Part of the reason I'm doing this is what make me study Matthew 23. And I've got to come to terms. Yeah. I think Gus is going to answer that. But I think part of it is Jesus has the benefit of knowing those people's hearts. And knowing that is good. I'll write that one down. <laughs> which, which... Jesus had the benefit of knowing their hearts. And that's probably exactly right. Because what I say to people, because our culture's all screwed up on this one, you talk about judgment. Now, you can't have society without judgments. Let's just think Ten Commandments. I've got to have some, you know, murder is bad, bad idea. Murder is wrong. Adult, you, you, can have a, you can have judgments. 
And you have to be able to say adultery is wrong. Now, where I've used what you just said is, so yes, I judge adultery to be wrong. I try to be a little gentle when I judge people that I think are adulterers because I don't know their heart. And I think the contemporary world has, we either judge or don't judge. And the way we do Christianity or Judaism or any, the way we do society is you have to have standards of judgment. Some behaviors are wrong. But we need to be gentle with the people, a real live adulterer, because I don't know the situations completely. I don't know the person's heart. That's, I like that. Jesus would know the heart of the Pharisees. So that's why when you take any of the judgments in the Bible on human sexuality or anything else, holding those judgments, you still have to figure out how you deal with living, breathing human beings. You know, I, I just don't judge living, breathing human beings. You know, I, I just don't. You know, um, if they come to me, I will say certain things are wrong in the Christian faith. I mean, if I, you know, if, if, if I murdered Sarah, that's bad. But if you knew that I was exercising such restraint to keep from murdering all of you, you would view me differently. I don't know the whole story when I look at an individual. So I try to be very non-judgmental with individuals. But I'm still going to say running a red light is wrong. And, um, you know, but I may say, but if you ran the red light, I may think you're rushing to the hospital. Your child just got ran over. Yeah, I, be, be gentle when it comes to the real life human being. That doesn't mean we don't have standards. Our culture today either says you judge or you don't. And Jesus would roll his eyes at that one too. Um, I like that. I'll have to remember that. Remember that. Hold on to that. When we get to G, yeah, I'm not going to do what Jesus did because I don't know their hearts. Um, anything else before we wrap up? <clears throat> Let's do two things. Um, <clears throat> Kathy, I get you to lead us in prayer. If you'll share prayer requests or joys or praises with Kathy. I'll get her to close us. But when she says, amen, don't run, um, I want us to introduce ourselves to each other. So share some prayer concerns or joys. I have a joy. Mm -hmm. My daughter attended church this Sunday, probably the first time in years. That is great. I've got family members I'm still waiting on. We do. Uh, at one point, we, we've kind of made one offer, two offers. We're making an offer to an organist yesterday. Um, and if I, I know he's going to say yes. I'm praying he Because going week to week, young contemporary, y'all just entered this world. We've been going week to week since Frank got killed. Hunting somebody to play the organ. So, yeah, it's about pushing me over the edge. So um, we're, we are now, we're down to our last three candidates for choir director. I think we're making an offer to an organist. Uh, even found the person that we needed to work part-time at night to just be in the building. Um, we're, we're starting to look at, and actually you'll find a whole lot more great resumes for contemporary worship. You ever tried to find an organist lately? Any of you take an organ lately? Nobody takes organ anymore. So you actually get more, yeah, pray for them as we, these types of leaders in the church are really important. And, and again, I always, trends, you know, let me say one word about change because I may forget to say it later. It's not that people dislike change. We all say that. You'll elect me president if I promise change. So it's not change in the abstract that we hate. What we hate is when change causes me a little discomfort. We want the church to grow until somebody's in my spot and took my parking spot. <laughs> then we're not as happy. So change, if you look back over your life and think about the best times of your life, there are going to be times of change. 
marriage, graduation, having children. So we don't hate change. We just hate discomfort. So again, we can't go through life hating discomfort. We need to embrace. I had one staff person in one of my churches. She has hated when I would say to staff, you've got to embrace the chaos. She hated that. Her whole view of life was there could be no chaos. I mean, yeah, I can take you to some churches where there's no chaos. There's nothing going on. It is neat and clean. Everything's in order. Yeah, the more vibrant something is, the more chaos there is. So, yeah. Um, I just got a text while he was talking, and my sister had a place come on her back that looked horrible. I saw it the other day, and she went to the doctor and it was cancer. So mm. it was bad looking, huge, mm. fast. Mm. What's her name? I'm Cheryl. Cheryl, thank you. Cheryl. Mm. I heard somebody else, yeah. You will love it after you're past it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh, great. Great. You know what struck me this past week? A little bit harder than I thought. Um, when we rolled over into January, I received my first small retirement check from the United Methodist Church. <laughs> and I knew that was coming because that's how I exited the United Methodist Church. I had to withdraw and retire. So I withdrew on December 31st and officially became retired January 1st. So um, please, you have to help people understand. I'm getting a little retirement check, but I'm not retired. Now, the big question is, Quentin, I'm going to wait and see in June if they send me a watch. Um, I, I don't expect a watch. <laughs> That's a good point. I'll be careful if they send me a watch. <clears throat> but yeah, when I talk about somebody retired, and I just did it because I've got so many years in. It's kind of like teaching and stuff. I have enough years in the United Methodist Church to retire. I'm not old enough. I think I'm 35 years old. Um, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I'm too active to sit still, so the journey ahead I'm excited about. Like, there's just that new chapter, like, all of the opportunities that may come open. Yeah, you just kind of reinvent yourself.